Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. I'm in Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to do verses 1 through 13. I'm going to call this section the Church of Sardis and Philadelphia, or the Churches of Sardis and Philadelphia. We've already covered four of the churches, the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Theatera. That was all in Revelation 2, and now we're going to do two more here at the first part of Revelation 3 before we finish up in our next audio with the church at Laodicea. So we start in verse 1, Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. (laughs) That's a great way to address a church. You're dead. Sardis is the fifth church. It was a wealthy and famous city. It was built up on a mountain. It had an acropolis that was almost impregnable, yet it had been totally captured by its enemies twice in its history. I think Cyrus, was it Cyrus the Great? Conquering Lydia, where Croesus was there, and then Croesus ended up being Cyrus's advisor. They, actually, they don't know. The records get a little bit musty. Great story, though, if you read ancient history. It happened all the time. It's because nobody, everybody, Croesus thought that the battle season was over and that the Persians had gone back to winter quarters, but they didn't. They attacked. And they weren't paying attention. They didn't have their guard up, and the soldiers came up the back way. And there's also another story, too, about how Cyrus's precursor knocked off the uh, Sardis again. I forgot the details. My, my memory's fuzzy, but we know that Sardis had been totally captured by its enemies twice in its history, which describes the sleeping condition of the Sardis church. So the Sardis church are the ones who just aren't alert. The reason that Croesus incidentally had so much money is because there was a river that ran right by Sardis that was full of gold. And People would gold. They pay t- would pay in the gold. They pay taxes to Croesus, and he became known as one of the wealthiest people in the ancient world. Now, Bruce Gore adds an interesting point here. He points out that people that are wealthy often get spiritually complacent. So this is a perfect church to illustrate spiritual complacency. You got a wealthy king who doesn't guard his back entrance. He gets complacent and he gets destroyed by the enemy. He says, "You are dead. You were alive, but you are." dead. Now, there's no evidence that the church in Sardis was being persecuted, but what happened was is the church had totally compromised with the surrounding culture. There was no theological controversy there, as at Ephesus fighting the Nicolaitans, nor were there moral problems. Nobody was being tempted to idolatry or immorality, as with the Nicolaitans, as at Pergamum. The church was so innocuous, Satan probably didn't feel like wasting his time working on it. Now contrast Ephesus and Thyatira. Ephesus, the Ephesians were alive. They were fighting the Nicolaitan heretics, as I just said, but they weren't practicing love. They were dead orthodox. The Thyatirans were alive. They were loving and faithfully persevering, but they tolerated the cult of Jezebel. Jezebel. But the church at Sardis wasn't doing anything. It was just there. I can think of certain churches in America that are like the church of Sardis. They got their programs. They go through the motions every Sunday. They got their little Protestant rituals. We say three hymns, and we go through the program, and we do next. We have a little doxology. Then we have the sermon, which lasts 15 to 20 minutes, or God forbid, an hour, or 30 minutes or 40 minutes. They're usually boring as heck. Churches that just go through the motion, they're sleeping. They need to be woke up. Now, who is writing to this sleepy church at Sardis? It's the one who has the seven spirits of God, seven spirits 
Seven is the word for holy, divine. So this is the divine spirit, the divine spirit of God. That's the Holy Spirit of God. So Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God in many places. The Holy Spirit says to be the spirit of Jesus. For example, in Galatians 4, you are his son because God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart. So that's the Holy Spirit of God. Big authority coming here. Jesus is saying, I've got authority to tell you, church at Sardis, that you're sleeping. And the seven stars, seven stars was a symbol that was on a lot of Roman coins standing for authority of the emperor. But no, this is standing for the authority of Jesus. And more specifically, the seven stars stand for the seven messengers who are sending out the message of the seven angels that are sending out the message to the seven churches. I'm assuming angels means messengers. We know that from Revelation 1.16, 116 and 120. 116 says he had seven stars in his right hand, talking about Jesus that was appearing to John in the vision. A sharp double-edged sword come from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Revelation 1.20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand are the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'm assuming angels as messengers there. We go to verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 3. Wake up, Sardis. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. That's one thing about a sleepy church. It's about to die. Because churches either got to be growing or they got to be dying. There's no sleeping in the middle. Strengthen the things with the remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Again, there's nothing wrong with deeds. Churches are supposed to be deeds. They don't rely on deeds for their salvation, but they are the fruit of their salvation. We're not saved by deeds, but we're not saved apart from deeds. Works. I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Remember is oftentimes, it's used a lot in the scriptures, but I need to remind you. I need to remind you what you already know. It's easy to forget it. Repent means to turn away from it. Don't do it anymore. In other words, turn away from your sleepy condition. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know it. what hour I will come to you. Now, that's one thing about sleeping. If you're sleeping, you don't realize that the thief's coming because you're sleeping. But if you're away, you got your Rossi revolver loaded up with 38 shells and you're looking out the front door, you're waiting for the, the burglar alarm system to trip, and you're waiting, you're waiting to flip on the, when you hear a sound, you're waiting to flip on the floodlight so you can see the thief coming. Man, you ready for him then. Well, that's kind of what Jesus was saying. He said, you, you, you don't know when I'm coming to you. Now, of course, that coming there is not, that's a come to Jesus meeting. That's coming in judgment, folks. That's not coming at the end of time. Everybody thinks that coming I'm coming soon, Revelation. No, it's coming soon. He's talking about coming to you to wake you up. This idea of a coming judgment or a judgment coming, not being at the end of history, but being within history, we can see in three other places in Revelation 2 and 3 as Jesus is writing to the seven churches. Revelation 2, 5, remember then how far you, the Ephesian church, have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So I will come to you. That's a judgment coming. Revelation 2.16, so repent, otherwise I will come to you. This is Pergamum. I will come to you, the church at Pergamum, quickly, and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And this is quickly, not at the end of time. Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. And the purpose is to judge the synagogue of Satan at Philadelphia. That's where we are now. We're talking about, well, we hadn't gotten there yet. In this audio, we'll talk about the church of Philadelphia next. And Jesus says, I'm going to come to you guys. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crowd. I'm coming soon. Now, that's either to be coming to judge. That's probably not to judge the Philadelphians, but to judge the synagogue of Satan. 
who's harassing the Philadelphians. But the point is, is that judgment coming happens all through the scripture, all through these two chapters in Revelation. It's not talking about the coming at the end of time. Now, of course, there can be a coming at the end of time. I don't mean to say this is exclusively how the word is used, but we need to take the context. So these churches are expecting Jesus to come soon. Remember, the book of John was written in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, and the coming soon will be 8070 when all of the persecution will be done. But, of course, some of this coming is, does not have to do with 8070. It has to do with Jesus coming shortly somehow to judge these churches. Now, I don't know how he's, he's not coming physically, obviously, but he's coming in some way to judge those churches. You notice he says, uh, repent, do the deeds you did before. I've not found your deeds completed. That's exactly what he told the Ephesian church. Revelation 2.5, repent and do the works you did at first. Get back to the beginning, folks. Remember when your church was alive and it was fun to go to church and you were so excited about the Lord? Get back to that and don't ever forget it. Now notice the last word in verse 3. You will not know at what hour I, Jesus, will come to you. The you is the church at Sardis. It's not the whole world. Just in case you might be a futurist and might be thinking that way. It's not talking about coming to judge everybody or coming for everybody. It's talking about Sardis. It's a particular local judgment aimed at the church of Sardis back then. Now, if you want to put it in the future, like futurists always love to put everything in the future, and then you tell them, well, Sardis is already gone. They say, ah, oh, but I can see a futurist now saying, well, but maybe there'll be a revived church at Sardis, just like there'll be a revived Roman Empire. Yeah, we know from the book of Daniel that the Roman Empire is gone, but it'll come back. Where's the proof of that? Sheer theological speculation we go to verse 4 revelation 3 but you have a few people in sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy now here the symbolism is easy a white garment stands for holiness righteousness cleanliness purity soil their garments means you're walking in sin and notice that being lukewarm and sleepy and not doing good works is the same thing as going out and actively doing a bad work now, notice there were a few people there in Sardis. They didn't let their fellow church members who were asleep bother them. They still held on to Jesus, and that's a good application. Just because your fellow church members are asleep, that doesn't mean you have to be. Revelation 3, verses 5 and 6. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's that word overcomes. That's one of the three major themes of Revelation. Theme number one is that the New Jerusalem, the church, replaces the Old Jerusalem, the persecuting apostate rabbinic nation of Israel. The second theme is that there's two persecuting entities of the church, Old Israel and the Roman Empire. And the third theme is Jesus is going to come back and wipe those two entities out as far as their persecution of the church so that Christians can overcome. So that's why we read about overcoming so much in chapters 2 and 3, this is a book meant to encourage Christians under persecution. And you know, one reason they might have gotten lazy and sleepy is maybe there was some persecution and they just got tired of fighting. I don't know. or I don't know about the church at Sardis. But the point is, you got to overcome. And usually you think overcoming, overcoming persecution. But maybe they're just trying to overcome their laziness. I don't know. I don't think so. I think they probably were persecuted too at one time. But at any rate, you who are overcome will be clothed in white garments. Your holiness will be made perfect in Christ. And Jesus will not erase your name from the book of life. Now, 
Arminians love to look at this verse and say, ah, see there, it's possible for Jesus to erase your name from the book of life. Well, first of all, let's point out that it doesn't say Jesus will erase anybody's name from the book of life. He says, I will not erase your name from the book of life. So this phrase doesn't mean that it's possible for a Christian to lose his salvation. It means, rather, that once the Christian's name is in the book, it will not be erased. It is assumed that the Christian will overcome. Now, if a professed Christian in Sardis apostatizes, well, he wasn't saved to begin with. Now, the Christians at Sardis probably felt like they were about to be erased from the physical book of life. And Jesus says, no, you won't get erased from that. The only book that counts is the book of life, the spiritual book of life. And, you know, let's, I hate to say this, but I mean, when I was young and was soaked in dispensationalism, I was always told over and over again, you got to take it literally, got to take it literally. So I always pictured there was a book up there that Jesus was writing. And it's a metaphor, folks. It's a metaphor. There's not a book up there with your name in it. So at any rate, Jesus ends up his exhortation to the Sardis church with a positive, a pos- on a positive note. I will not erase your name from the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Your name, and, and according to Chilton, name means it has the sense of it belongs to you. For example, I put my name on my exam paper. That means that paper belongs to me. We go now to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. We're finished now with the church at Sardis, and we go to the sixth church, the church at Philadelphia. And so the angel of the church in Phil- and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now that's Jesus, who is holy and true and has the key of David. That's Jesus. Because the messenger to Philadelphia is writing what Jesus told John. Now in Philadelphia... We have many apostate Jews attacking the church like it's Smyrna, where there's another synagogue of Satan there. Philadelphia has a synagogue of Satan. Now, it's interesting to compare the church of Philadelphia with the church at Smyrna. Both Smyrna and Philadelphia had a synagogue of Satan, so they were both being persecuted by apostate Jews. The Philadelphia church was weak like the church at Smyrna because they were being persecuted. There's a difference, though. This is according to Bruce Gore. The church at Philadelphia had prospects because it had an open door in front of them, as we see in verse 7, as we, as we will see. Open door. These, this open door is not mentioned in Smyrna. They were just promised deliverance from persecution. So that's a little bit of a difference. Both the churches were promised deliverance from persecution from these synagogues of Satan. And likewise, Philadelphia received no criticism from Jesus. Smyrna was the only other church that did not receive criticism of the seven churches. Smyrna and Philadelphia are unique in that aspect. Jesus identifies himself as one who has the key of David. What does that mean, the key of David? According to David Chilton, this is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 25. Now, in that section, Isaiah is talking about God deposing a bad steward who was in charge of King Hezekiah's house. Bad steward's name was Shebna. God gave the key of David to Eliakim, who was a good steward. So the key of David means David says, this is the key to my house. So you're going to need the key in order to manage my house. So Shebna, you give me the key so you don't have the authority to come into my house anymore. But Eliakim now, he's a good steward. He does have the authority to come into my house. So a key is that which gives you authority to go into the house. Well, David, of course, is the type of Christ. So a key of David means the key of Christ, which means Jesus has given or can give the key of his key to whoever he wants to. Now, that key can open and nobody can shut it. And that key can shut and nobody can open it. What does that mean? It means Jesus can open the door to life 
and no one's going to shut it, in other words, because no one's going to erase you from the book of life. So that that's the key opening the door to the kingdom of Christ, and also the key who shuts, the key which can shut, and no one opens it. In other words, if you ain't saved, you ain't getting in with all your good works. You can't open the door without the key of Christ. Jesus is the key in order to get into his house, into heaven. You got to do it his way, which is by grace, through faith, and not by works. Let's read one of the verses in that passage, Isaiah 22, 15 through 25. I'll read verse 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his, that's Eliakim's, the good steward's shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. So you see, it uses the same language. It's a direct quote. It's more than an illusion, really. It's a direct quote of Isaiah. So, as David Chilton says, Jesus is announcing that officers of apostate Israel are false stewards. They're about to be thrown out of office. They're replaced by the true steward of God's house. Now, Chilton gives a little deeper meaning than the typical meaning of opening up to salvation and, and, and shutting to salvation. If you go back and read a little bit of Isaiah and the Revelation here, Chilton would be right. The officers of apostate Israel, they don't have the key to get into the kingdom anymore. They're finished. Kaputsky, they're thrown out of office. Jesus, he does have the key, and so he can get in. Let's look at a more traditional interpretation of that key of David. I look at Holman's Bible Dictionary, which says this, In the Old Testament, the holder of the keys had the power to admit or deny entrance to the house of God, as we've already said. In late Judaism, the key imagery was extended to angelic beings and to God as keepers of the keys of heaven and hell. That's more what I was saying. Jesus has the key to let you into life or to keep you out of life which is the same thing as keep, keeping you in hell. By the time we get to the New Testament, keys are used only figuratively as a symbol of authority, particularly the authority of Christ over the final destiny of persons. So the risen Christ holds the key of David and controls access to the New Jerusalem. By overcoming death, he has the keys to the world of the dead. We look at Revelation 1.18 and we see that, and the living one, talking about God, Jesus is the living one, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So there's the idea of I can let you into, I can shut you up into Hades and you can, or hell, and you can stay there forever. I can let you out. I got the key. I like that interpretation a little bit better than Chilton's, actually. But Chilton could be right. He could be talking about Jesus has the key now. He, he has the key to the kingdom. It's his kingdom now. The false stewards have been booted out, those Pharisees and Sadducees who killed Jesus and the prophets. We go now to chapter 3, verse 8 of Revelation. I know your deeds. Jesus is talking now to the church at Philadelphia. I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So here Jesus tells the church at Philadelphia that they have an open door before them, and nobody can shut it. So they're not only going to be delivered from persecution, they have an open door, wide open Vista of prospects here. The false key holders have shut the door to their false kingdom. That's the apostate Jews. They're claiming that the Philadelphian Christians no longer are God's covenant people, say this synagogue of Satan. They claim that the old covenant is still operative, but Christ is the one who has the key of David. He'll open the door for them, and nobody can shut it. They're in the kingdom because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now notice that. If you just have a little bit of power, but you keep Jesus' word, I don't know if you're like me, but you feel like sometimes you're powerless. It happens all the time. 
Just remember, if you kept Jesus' word, don't deny Jesus, there's an open door in front of you somewhere. I think that's a good application. They had little power as opposed to the impressive, outwardly alive, compromising church at Sardis. That church had a name that you're alive, but you are dead. They just had a name that they were alive. But by golly, the church at Philadelphia, they had some powers, a little bit of power. I wonder if Jesus meant here, Philadelphians, you have a little bit of power outwardly. You have a little bit of money, a little bit of clout, a little bit of soft power, a little bit of cultural power. You don't have a lot, but you've kept my word. I don't think so, though. I think what he's talking about is you have a little bit of spiritual power, and you have not denied my name. They were spiritually weak, I believe, is what Jesus meant. We go now to Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not. Why? Because true spiritual Jews are those that love Jesus. Who say that they are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, there was another synagogue of Satan in Smyrna, Revelation 2, 9. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. So a synagogue of Satan is composed of false Jews, people who are saying they're Jews, but they're not really Jews. True Jews are those who receive the Messiah Jesus. As Chilton so bluntly puts it, quote, there's no such thing as, quote, unquote, orthodox Judaism. There is no such thing as a genuine belief in the Old Testament that is consistent with a rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and God. Those who do not believe in Christ do not believe the Old Testament either. The God of Judaism is the devil. Ooh. The God of Judaism is the devil. Now, you think about that. We don't talk like that very often. I guess we're scared of being called anti-Semitic, maybe. But, but that's true, because they deny Jesus. And Jews today, just like any other nationality today, if they deny Jesus, you got some other God. And that God is the devil, because there's only one other God beside Jesus. He comes in different forms. That's Satan. you got a choice. Jesus or Satan. Live or die with that choice. Now, Jesus promises the church at Philadelphia that he's going to make these false Jews of the synagogue of Satan. They're going, to, they're going to come down and bow down at their feet, at the Philadelphians' feet. And they're going to know that Jesus loved them. Now, this shows that there's going to be conquering, overcoming victory for the church at Philadelphia. This has probably occurred in AD 70 when rabbinic Judaism was wiped out, I would think. The reference that John makes here, or that Jesus makes, is Isaiah 60:14. The sons of your oppressors will come and bow down to you. All who reviled you will fall face down at your feet. They'll bow down at your feet. So Isaiah there is giving a promise to the covenant people who are being persecuted by the heathen. He also says in verse 14, they will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They will call you covenant people. Who's the city of the Lord today? That's the church. We're going to talk about heavenly Jerusalem in just a minute. Who's the Zion of God today? The church. And so the church is going to be victorious, and all of the church's enemies are going to bow down at the feet of the church. Boy, that's a promise of deliverance, all right? There's overcoming on steroids. Let's read Hebrews 12:22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion. Is that the city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem? Isaiah says, they will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. The author of the book of Hebrews picks up that idea and says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion is a symbol of the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the idea here is the church will overcome one of the major themes of Revelation. These persecuted churches needed encouragement, and this is encouragement to the max. 
We go now to verse 10, Revelation 3. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, Jesus continues to talk to the Philadelphians. Well, actually, he's giving a message to the, the angel and John, the messenger who's going to take this message to the Philadelphians. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth or dwell on the land. Now, this is a verse that pre-trib rapture advocates, dispensationalists, love to talk about. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. They say that when Jesus says, I will keep you, Philadelphian church, from the hour of testing, that's referring to the pre-trib rapture. Well, no, it doesn't. It means it's keeping, it means preserving the Philadelphia church in the midst of tribulation. How can it be a rapture? The rapture, according to their fallacious theory, is that the rapture will take the whole church out of the world, not just the Philadelphian church, but this is as I will keep you. It's talking about the Philadelphian church. So right there, it can't refer to their view of the rapture. Nothing is spoken at all here of the end of the world. Nothing is spoken of the second coming, coming. In fact, there's not one verse in Scripture that states a pre-trib rapture theory. I've studied that, and that's when I began to see that I've been fed a bill of goods. This verse refers to the Philadelphians, not the entire church. It's real hard to see why it should be applied to a pre-trib rapture. Now, notice that the hour of testing that they're going to be kept from is an hour. Now, you know, if you want to be literal about it, that's 60 minutes of persecution. Well, obviously, obviously it's not meant to be literal, I don't even think people who all the time talk about literal, 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 all these dispensationalists who talk that way, I don't think they would even take that literally to be 60 minutes of testing. I think this talks about a short time of testing. And notice the Great Tribulation, according to their theory, is supposed to last seven years. This is 60 minutes, so it doesn't match up there. So the time of the persecution is short, so the implication here is Jesus is saying, look, if you guys in Philadelphia will hold on, deliverance is coming. Now, notice that the hour is about to come upon the whole world. About to means it's coming quickly. It's coming soon. And if you take this to be the preacher of rapture, we're already 2,000 plus years away from when Jesus spoke these words. And so that means that Jesus could not have been talking about a preacher of rapture at the end of the world. It's absurd to think so. That word for about to is mellow. And the lexicon on crosswalk.com, the definition is to be about to be on the point of doing or something, uh, suffering something, about to come is how the NASB translates it. It means it's going to happen shortly. Well then, what tribulation was Jesus talking about? It's one that's going to come upon the whole world. First of all, what's world? It refers to the Roman world, not the whole planet. Now, of course, futurists love to say, oh, the whole world is going to be under some kind of terrible tribulation, great tribulation. No, it's the Roman Empire. Now, as it turns out, the tribulation that came upon the Roman world right before AD 70 was predicted by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. It was real. It happened. The Roman Empire was convulsed with all sorts of civil wars. I've just read, listened to a Roman history podcast about the year of four emperors, which ran from June of 68 to December of 69. Gallus, Othello, and Vitalis, and Vespasian. Those four emperors ruled one after the other because they were killing each other, and it was, the empire was in a civil war. Many people thought the Roman Empire wasn't going to make it. It was going to die. That third emperor was Vitellius. I'm sorry, not Vitellus, but Vitellius. And so that happened right before Jerusalem fell in 87. He was burnt to the ground. So when Jesus says the hour which is about to come upon the whole world, he's talking about the year of four emperors on, on the whole Roman world. 
And he says all of these trials and tribulations will test those who dwell on the earth. Now you can take earth as meaning the Roman Empire, just as repeating the same thing. But David Chilton points out, and I'm going to make a big deal here, that it was not only the year of four emperors that messed up the Roman Empire, but it was also the test, the trial of those who dwelt on the land of Israel, not the Roman Empire, or not the whole planet, certainly, but not even the Roman Empire, but those who dwelt in Israel. Well, how can we say that? Well, before we do that, let's, let's show that world is the Roman Empire. I just stated that with no proof, and let me give you some proof. Luke 2.1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That word is okomene, which is the word that means world. There's two words, actually, that mean that, okomene and cosmos. Now, it's interesting, Luke 2.1 in the King James translates, translates it this way, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And in the NASB, it's the entire Roman world, so they make it more explicit. Colossians 1.6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Well, was it growing fruit in Antarctica? Was it growing fruit in Outer Mongolia? I don't think so. The gospel hadn't gotten there yet when Paul was writing Colossians. Notice that it's all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit. That means it was going on right then when he was writing the Colossians, which was before AD 70. So the world couldn't be the whole world, it has to be the Roman Empire. Colossians 1.23, the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Romans 1.8, your faith is being reported all over the world, all over the cosmos. It means all over the Roman world, because that's as far as it had gotten back then, in the mid-50s. Romans 10.18, but I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. There, the evangelist voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world, ends of the Orchomene, which is the Roman Empire, the inhabited world. Acts 11.28, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. That's not talking about all over. That's not talking about North America and South America. It's talking about all over the Roman Empire. Well, if the trial is coming all over the world, means all over the Roman Empire, is this trial also going to come over those who dwell on the land or the earth? Well, the word for earth or land comes from the Greek word gay, and the only way to know how to translate it is you have to use context. And, of course, context sometimes is theologically determined, determined by one's theological framework. Now, since most of those who translate modern English translations are futurists, and I hope that will change maybe in the next generation or so, I don't know, unfortunately, the word is always translated as earth. Well, if you translate it as earth, then it, it doesn't mean the whole planet. It means upon the whole Roman world, and that's how the word earth should be constrained by its context. And that makes sense to me. That's okay. But David Chilton makes the point that he thinks it's the, those who dwell on the land. Well, the first problem you have is, is, well, how are those who are being tested in Israel, on the land of Israel, how does that affect the church at Philadelphia? Well, re first of all, it says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. They were being tested by the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan is the tail. The head is the mother church of Jerusalem in Jerusalem. When the head is killed by the, in the Jewish war, and they're destroyed in eighty seventy, that's going to kill the tail too, and there's not going to be any more testing of the, from the synagogue of Satan of the Christians at Philadelphia. That's going to be the end of it. So it's a very good case that those who dwell on the land are being tested because when the year of four emperors was going on is right at the same time that the, the Jewish war was winding up. The year of four emperors was basically 69, and the Jerusalem fell in August of 70 the next year. Now, just to show you that the word earth, those who dwell on the earth, can be those who dwell on the land, 
let's do a little bit of Greek dictionary work, Greek lexicon work here. Well, before I do that, let me point out that Israel was an integral part of the Roman Empire. So if you take land, if you take gay as referring to land and not earth, and you say, okay, well, there's all kinds of turmoil in the world, in the Roman world, how does that affect people on the land? Remember, turmoil in Rome affects Israel because Israel is a part of the Roman Empire. Is the next emperor going to be one that comes in and tries to put a statue of the emperor in the temple and so forth? Is he going to tax us to death? So they had an intimate and personal interest in what happened in the year of four emperors and who's going to win and what's going to shake down. So that's one way. That's another way, I should say, that the people in Israel on the land were concerned about what's happening in the world in the Roman Empire. And all of this, as I said before, affects the Christians in Philadelphia because what happens in Israel affects them because of the synagogue system, the false Jewish religious system. Now let's look at some translation notes about gay. Most modern translators translated earth, as I said, and most modern translators can't understand the book either, I might point out. John Calvin couldn't, Martin Luther couldn't, and I suggest to you there's a lot of other people who can't either. Here's the relevant definitions from the lexicon on crosswalk.org. Definition number four is the earth as a whole. The earth as opposed to the heavens. The inhabited earth, the abode of men and animals. Okay, well, that would be the Roman Empire, not the whole planet. Well, it, it means the earth as a whole. The, the naked word by itself, gay, means the earth. But then when you put it in its context next to the Roman world, it's talking about the Roman Empire. But here's another definition from Crosswalk's lexicon. Gay means a country, land, enclosed within fixed boundaries, a tract of land, a territory, a region. So that would be the land of Israel. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, earth is translated, gay is translated as earth 165 times, as land is 46. And that's with translating gay as earth all through Revelation. And the reason that futurists like to do that is because when there's a tribulation, it's on, not on the land of Israel, it's on the whole world. And that's how you get all these apocalyptic visions, nuclear bombs going off and all this nonsense. Well, gay is used 67 times in Revelation. Now, if it was translated most of those 67 times as land instead of earth, which I believe it should be, then the translations of earth and gay in the New American Standard Bible would, would be just about equal. Now, Chilton says that in Revelation, the phrase gay, the phrase those who dwell on the land, is used 12 times in the book of Revelation to refer to apostate Israel. For example, now this is where I'm going to show you how the translation of gay on a preterist viewpoint, it works perfectly when you use land instead of earth. And it takes away the fear of the whole world going up in a conflagration. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That's the, that's the verse we're on now. The hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the land. Revelation 16, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the land? Those are the Christians who've been murdered by the apostate Jews. Revelation 8.13, And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the land, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sign. And see, when you translate it land, you see it's judgment on Israel, not judgment on the whole planet. Revelation 11.10, And those who dwell on the land will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the land. 
That shows that the judgment is on Israel. Revelation 13:8, And all who dwell on the land will worship him, worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation 13, 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. That's the second beast, the land beast. And he makes the land and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, the sea beast. That means all of Israel is worshiping Rome. We have no God but Caesar. Revelation 13, 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the land because of the signs which was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the land to make an image to the beast. Now, we're going to get into all this when we get to Revelation 13, but I'm just showing to you how many times that phrase, who dwell on the land, it's talking about Israelites, apostate Israelites. Revelation 14:6, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the land and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, there, I would say, I would make the case that that's talking about the earth because it says to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So I'll, get, I'll, I'll switch from land to earth on that one. Revelation 17:2, with whom the kings of the land committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the land were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. The, and I say that's the rulers of the land committed acts of immorality. Now here, the, the kings of the earth, that's other kings outside of Israel, so that first gate should be earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the land were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So that means that's talking about commercial commerce with the kings of the Roman Empire that the leaders of Jerusalem were doing. We'll talk about that too when we get there. So we got two earths and a lot of other lands. Revelation 17, 8. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up and out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the land will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life. And that's those who live in Israel. All right. Well, we're going to have to look at those instances of gay more closely when we get to the proper place as we go through the book of Revelation. But I, I want to point this out to you early. That word gay is a extremely critical in trying to interpret the book of Revelation. And if you don't believe in you know, a lot of times you talk about Greek and people say, ah, you're just a cultist, you're trying to twist the words. No, folks, this is easy. All you have to do is look in a lexicon and go through, do a search on your computer, look up land or look up earth or look up gay, look at all the list in a concordance and look at the list of all the verses that use it and show how it's the context that determines, just like I did just a minute ago. Saying, ah, oh, this context must be earth, and this context must be land. And, of course, some context is ambiguous. You have to make a choice. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there's a word that's translated land, Eretz. It was a common prophetic expression for rebellious, idolatrous Israel about to be destroyed and driven from the land, which is quite apropos here in Revelation. For example, in Jeremiah 1.14, Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. So you see, the land is almost a technical expression for Israel, the land. Jeremiah ten eighteen. for thus saith the Lord, behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land. Ezekiel 7, 7, the morning is come unto thee, O thou that dwellest in the land. The time is come, the day of trouble is near. Ezekiel thirty six seventeen. son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way. Hosea 4, 1 and 3. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Joel 1, 2 and 14. Hear this, you old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Verse 14. Sanctify you a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. Joel 2, 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Zephaniah 1.18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to, deli to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, 
but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for, she, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. So dwellers of the land are apostate Israelites in so many Old Testament verses. Well, that fits perfectly here because that's what the theme of the book of Revelation is, is judgment on those apostate Israelites. The hour of testing which is soon to come upon the whole world and to test those who dwell on the land. The apostate Israelites who are persecuting the church with their synagogues of Satan, especially in, or as explicitly mentioned in, Philadelphia, as well as Smyrna. There are other verses in the Old Testament, by the way, that talk about the land, but to save time, I won't mention them. This is a very easy Bible study. I know you're taking my word for it right now, but gay or eretz, which is translated gay in the Septuagint, it means land of Israel. Lots of times. Sometimes it means the whole planet, the whole earth, but lots of times it means land. Verse 11, chapter 3. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Coming quickly? Hmm, this. Now you want to take verse 10 to refer to the tribulation, which I've showed you is impossible. But since dispensationalists insist on the impossible and take that to refer to a pre-trib rapture, it's coming quickly. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, what part of quickly do we not understand? 2,000 plus years? It hadn't happened yet? That's quickly? Please. Now, of course, what they say is it's coming quickly in the sense that we wait and we wait and we wait 2,000 years. And then when it happens, it happens real quick. Just like I'm, I'm, I'm going to come quickly to come visit you. I wait 2,000 years. I drive my car to your front door. I turn the car off. I open the door. And then I sprint like crazy to the front door. That's not what it means, folks. That's not even how we use English. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So the judgment on the synagogue of Satan was coming quickly, which of course happened in AD 70, which was very shortly after this book was written, which was in the mid-60s. So that no one will take your crown if you can just hold on for a couple more years until we take care of these apostate Jews, the synagogue of Satan, by destroying the temple in Jerusalem. If you can just hold on for a little bit, you can keep wearing your crown. The crown is a symbol of dominion and rulership. Philadelphia church had a little power. Verse 8 says, I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door so that no one can close because you have but little power. But despite that little power, they were supposed to get strength for themselves and rule. Nobody's going to take your crown. So I don't care if you're weak. You got a little power, just a little power. You got a crown too. Jesus expects you to rule and to reign in this life, not just in the future life, in this life, despite all the persecution and all the garbage that the world throws at us. Verses 12 through 13. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now the overcoming Christian at Philadelphia has God's name on his forehead, has the new Jerusalem written on his forehead, and now it has Jesus' new name written on his forehead. The question is, is why is Jesus' name said to be new? A lot of the commentators I looked at didn't have an answer for that, but John Gill gave what I thought was the best answer. He said, instead of the name of Jesus, Jesus' old name, it's now King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we read in Revelation 19:16. and he, Jesus, has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If Gill is right about that, then instead of just having Jesus on on the overcoming Christian's forehead, he has King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on there. At any rate, 
We got the name of God the Father, God the Son, and the heavenly Jerusalem all on your forehead. That means that you belong to Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. There ain't nothing going to touch you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished with Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. In our next audio, we'll take up Revelations 3, verses 14 through 22, which is a discussion of the church of Laodicea, the famous lukewarm church. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.